Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome back to With Friends Like These. We're doing something new. We're going to devote this entire season to converts and the conversion experience. The individual stories, the phenomenon, the neurology, the history. We'll be talking to scientists and former religious and political extremists, and we'll look at examples that come from cults and multi-level marketing and climate change. Now, why are we doing this? Well, with friends like these has always been interested in the ways that people change their minds about things and why people believe what they believe. We've all changed our minds about something, but have you ever changed your mind about something big? Most people don't. Humans literally do not work that way. And that's what makes converts and the conversion experience so fascinating. And our resistance to conversion is a great way to give context to the episodes to come. Which is why our first guest of the season is social psychologist Carol Tavris, and she's going to explain how the human brain is a perpetual self-justifying machine. We would rather delude ourselves than admit we're wrong. We'd rather continue making the same mistake rather than change the way we do things. Converts are rare, and the conversion experience is a mystery. Experts know how you set the stage for it, but what makes some people make that turn and other people keep going in the same direction? Well, as Carol put it in our conversation, if she knew the answer, she'd have a Nobel Prize. Now, she does know a lot of other things, and she will be sharing them with us. Carol spoke to us from Los Angeles, and her examples and research come from her delightfully entitled book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, co-authored with Elliot Aronson. Well, very happy to be here with you. Well, change their minds about what, you know? Change their minds about uh, preferences for one thing or another. I mean, of course, we change our minds all the time. But you are talking, I think, about changing our minds, about ideas that are important to us, about convictions that we have, about decisions that we've made, about, you know, beliefs we hold that have some weight and importance to us. Those are the ones that are very hard to change. Yes, indeed. And the reason, the reason, as Elliot Aronson and I say in our book, this was a theory that he developed many, many years ago that has been supported by literally thousands of studies. We are not rational animals. We are rationalizing animals. 
And the reason seems to be that it was beneficial for us as a species to come up with um, a belief, an idea, a decision, and then stay with it as long as it's serving us. So what Eliot developed was the theory of cognitive dissonance. This is a term everybody, you hear it all the time. It's used in many, many places from comic strips to Jeopardy. And what it means, it's a very simple concept with immensely powerful consequences. What cognitive dissonance is, is the discomfort, the mental discomfort that we feel when two beliefs contrast with each other or when an attitude conflicts with a behavior. This state of dissonance is as uncomfortable as being hungry and thirsty, and we're motivated to reduce it. So if you are a smoker and you know that smoking is not a good thing to be doing, you have to resolve that dissonance in one of two ways to make your practice of smoking consonant with your beliefs about smoking. So either you have to quit or you have to justify smoking. So what we have learned in now many, many years of research is the reason we stay with a belief and find it so hard to change it is that we have spent a lot of mental energy looking for all the confirming evidence that our belief is right and ignoring, overlooking, and dismissing or trivializing any evidence that we might have been wrong. I want to jump in just for a second because I want to clarify something. You're right. People use this term cognitive dissonance all the time. But from what I'm hearing from you, that's not something you display. That's the experience your mind is having before you do the rationalization or justification, right? Exactly right. That's really important to say, too. It's like a little homeostatic mechanism that goes on below awareness. You aren't aware of the way in which you are distorting the information you get, throwing out the information you don't want, and looking for stuff to support what you think. You're not aware that you're doing this. It's why, for example, after people have made a decision, do I want an electric car or do I want a, you know, some big SUV? The minute they make a decision, the minute, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's really quite extraordinary. They will start, you know, looking at all the things that are right about that decision and all the things that were wrong about the choice they didn't make. But you're not aware that you're doing that. You're right. It's true that the stronger your conviction, the more that contrary evidence strengthens the original belief? Yes. Cognitive dissonance is something we can feel when, say, your favorite movie star or director does something criminal, heinous, immoral, or reprehensible. You'll feel some dissonance about that. I mean, look at the dissonance of Michael Jackson's millions of fans over the charges against him, right? What did they do? Some of them just dismissed that evidence. Are you kidding? You don't, don't, don't diss our hero. And others said, wait a minute, I'm never going to look at another Michael Jackson video again. That's a powerful dissonance. But the dissonance we feel that is hardest for us is when our own self-concept is somehow under attack. Most people see themselves, what am I saying, see ourselves as being good, competent, kind, moral, ethical people. Now I tell you, to your shock and horror, that you have done something hurtful, cruel, foolish, 
uh, you're holding a belief that's completely past its shelf life. What are you doing still believing that vaccines are dangerous? And the more you have, the more your belief is central to your identity of who you are, the harder it is going to be for you to accept evidence that you just did something wrong, foolish, harmful, or cruel. That's why the, the, it's the people who are really the smartest and most competent who have the greatest difficulty accepting evidence that maybe they weren't. I have another example that is unfortunately pretty timely, I think, which is, um, let's say you're someone who voted for a racist for president, but you have a firm conviction that you are not, and people call you one. It seems to me that that would probably, that's like one of the most core identities someone can have, right? Like, that that's not me. I, we, have, we have so demonized that word, racist. Someone might have just such an extreme reaction to that. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. It would strengthen their conviction that they were good and right and true in the first place. What they will be motivated to do is to reduce that dissonance with um, some kind of self-justification. You're making me really feel like um, we sort of missed our moment with Trump voters. Um, <laughs> that it, it, what is happening is exactly what you're talking about, right? Like it just has become so polarizing and there's almost no way to unpolarize it. Like the arguing just keeps people pushing each other away. And that's true of his followers as well. Um, some followers, including the original voters who had voted for Obama before, um, found themselves in a state of great dissonance. What I expected from this guy is not what we're getting. Now, they have a choice now, don't they? Admit maybe they made a big mistake in voting for this man or throwing more energy where it had been placed to justify their conviction that they did the right thing. And it's human nature to do the latter. It's human nature to do the latter. We show, we show in the book, we use a metaphor we call the pyramid of choice. Imagine two people at the top of a pyramid who have to make a decision, vote for Trump or not vote for Trump, cheat or don't cheat, start this affair, don't have an affair, whatever the decision is. The minute you make a decision one way or the other, you will now be motivated to make that decision consonant with your beliefs. So you're not so sure about Trump, but you vote for him. Now you're going to look for the reasons to justify that vote. Over time, what happens to two people who make opposite choices at the top of that pyramid is they become more and more entrenched in the decision that they made. We saw this with the anti-vaccination people. Just got That steam engine just rolled along until at the bottom of the pyramid, at the bottom of that wide base, the two sides are as far apart as they can be and always thought they felt that way. Always thought they felt that way. So visually, you can see how hard it is to go back up. Because if you say, I was wrong at the top, you've got a whole lot of energy to explain why you didn't say that sooner. First of all, you're right that many people do have a political identity, Republican, Democrat, whatever it might be. 
Um, and what most people do is let their party affiliation do their thinking for them. So, for example, many studies have been done, uh, whether it's Palestinians and Israelis or Democrats and Republicans. If I give you a proposal uh, for welfare reform, you're a Republican, and I tell you that it comes from the Democrats, you're going to hate it. If I tell you it comes from Republicans, you'll say, what a very intelligent and terrific welfare reform program. Uh, and the same for Democrats. So what many people do is they say, I am a Democrat or a Republican, and whatever the party position is on things, well, okay, then that's my position. And we're going to take a quick break for capitalism and be right back with the question I really wanted to ask her. So some people change their minds. Can we figure out who that's going to be? If you're looking for a fun way to pass the time and who among us is not, you can pass the time and engage your brain uh, with uh, the new game, Best Fiends, which I misread basically up until today. Best Fiends is a casual game that anyone can play. Kids can play it. Adults can play it. I play it. I guess I, I fit into one of those categories. Uh, it has cool, you know, bright visuals. It's simple to start. It gets harder. And it kind of engages just enough of your attention. It is something to do with your eyes and hands while, say, you are listening to podcasts. Uh, you connect little shapes. You collect characters that are bugs. Your enemies are slugs. And every month it gets an update with new levels and events. So you can play it pretty much forever without it getting old. They are trying to take care of you the player. There are, again, like lots of different characters. They all have different kind of, you know, things that they can do for you. And I am ashamed to admit that I do sometimes think about strategy when I am not playing the game. It is a light and, you know, not news related thing to be doing with your brain and yet still exercising it. Again, that's best fiends, kind of like if this show was called with fiends like these. And you can download it for free at the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Again, that's friends, but without the R. Best fiends. In these unusual, unstable, unpredictable times, it is so great to have something that you can depend on and that will work right away. I am, of course, talking about Rothy's, the sustainable shoe with a zero break-in period. They have a lot of different styles. Their best-selling one is The Point in Black. It has over 3,000 nearly perfect reviews, but I am not finding myself in a place where I'm going to be wearing, you know, ballet slippers very much. I am instead wearing their Chelsea boot, which is kind of a Chelsea sneaker. It was my go-to all spring long, which is kind of squishy here in Minneapolis. You could just throw Rothy's in the washing machine, which I did. I wore them all the time. I may have only wore them. I don't know, again, about you, but uh, I'm not changing things very much these days. <laughs> and when I find something that works and something that's comfortable, that's what I'm going to use. And I think you will find that with Rothy's. They have lots of different styles, things you may want to try out for that day when we all leave our houses, colors, prints, patterns, uh, sneakers, loafers, those points, um, also the more standard ballet slipper. 
and more. They also have bags. You can check them all out at rothys.com slash WFLT. Again, that's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S.com slash WFLT, where style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, uh Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. And here we are back talking to Carol Tavares. I guess what I'm trying to do is sort of figure out the, the role that the, you know, integrated identity plays here, right? Because, like, that's the that's the source of cognitive dissonance. That's the sort of discomfort is, like, when my view of myself and my potential actions are not matching up, right? And, and so you can change. So rather than sort of uh, go against facts, you know, you can just— do something with your self-image. Well, that's the hardest thing to do, though. The hardest thing. If you're central, look, what are the things that are central to a person's identity? For some people, it's not politics at all, uh, which I find hard to believe, but that's true. I don't care about politics. Go away. Don't bother me. All parties are alike. Really? You think all parties are alike? Fine. Um, But to the extent that it is a defining part of your nature, um, then then it's very hard. So if you define, your, define yourself as a Republican or a Democrat, the idea of voting for somebody from the other party is like, what? You know, you want me to vote for a Martian? You, know, <laughs> you want me to swim across the English Channel naked? What are you asking me? I can't do those things. It, that's just not who I am, not who I am. And what it takes to change that identity is very difficult. What does it take to change somebody who's been raised to be a racist and skinhead to give that up and say, what was I doing all of those years and how embarrassed I am that I did that, okay? It's a huge identity change is what I'm saying. Um, And indeed, it's both embarrassing and discomforting to think "I I did that, I belong to that party, I held those beliefs, when you now see it differently. I wonder, I kind of threw out my my theory about what I think enables some people to step back from a powerful challenge um, of cognitive dissonance and change their identity rather than lie to themselves. What do you think are the sort of prerequisites for that? Or is there any, can you predict, is there a way that some, you can know that um, this person might have the capability to make this kind of uh, a shift in their thinking? Well, two things. First of all, it is, it is very difficult, as I say. <laughs> I'm getting the sense that it's very difficult. That's what that's... <laughs> it's very difficult. I'm, I'm sorry to keep saying this. Well, the reason I say this is, I think for Elliot and me, in writing our book, one of the most powerful realizations for us is that we ended each chapter, whether it was a chapter on the criminal justice system or family disputes or wars and rifts and the psychotherapy and memory. In each of these chapters, we ended with the story of somebody who did just what you're saying. Okay, I'm a psychotherapist 
I suddenly realized that in my years of supporting my clients who said they had recovered memories of their fathers raping them every day for 16 years, only they forgot, and realizing that that was a, you know, a hysterical epidemic and that, well, never mind, we don't have to go there. The, the point being that the therapist, what it took for a therapist to say, what I've been doing in my practice has harmed my clients. The district attorney recognizing that he had put an innocent man in prison for 32 years and the DNA completely exonerated him, said, oh my God, I never thought it was possible that innocent people are convicted and sent to prison. See? So for some, it's, it's an experience, an awareness that is so shocking to them that they can't dismiss it. They can't throw it away. But I'll tell you, in telling these stories, we felt the anguish of these individuals in giving up a central part of their identity, which might have been a professional identity, I'm a DA, I never make mistakes, <laughs> uh, to an identity based on competence. I'm a good doctor, and you're telling me I cut off the wrong arm in this surgery? <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, no, I didn't. That arm was going to get sick eventually, uh, you know. Um, so... So it's in the individuals who are able to do it that we can understand how difficult it is. So in your, your example, your theory is a very smart one, but I think there are many routes to breaking away from an original view or party loyalty or identity or belief that turns out to be wrong. There, there are many different routes. Um, one of the things that's helpful when you understand dissonance is that when we argue with someone who disagrees with us, fools that they are, <laughs> oh, what do you mean disagree with me? But when you argue with somebody, um, there's two reasons to argue with somebody, or maybe I should say one. If you're talking to someone who's a true believer, whatever the true belief is, forget about it. Go and have a nice cup of tea and, you know, talk about puppies. You're not going to change their mind. And they're not going to change yours, by the way. But if you are talking to somebody where there might be common ground or where you really want to understand what it is that is motivating their beliefs or ideas and where you think they might really be open to conversation, then it's worth doing. And you don't do it in a way that puts them in dissonance. So you don't say to them, What's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, you, you know, what's, what, what were you thinking? See, this is the famous thing people say, right? What were you thinking to vote for Donald Trump? Now, that what you're saying, of course, is how could you have been so stupid? This will immediately make the other person say, what was I thinking? I was thinking it was the right decision. Thank you very much. See? So all you have done under that kind of argument is get their backs up and you've now made further conversation impossible. Those chapters that had a illustration of someone who made a profound shift in their thinking, um, did those people have anything in common? Like, that's sort of my question is like, yeah, what makes them so... <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because if we had the answer, Elliot and I would have Nobel Prizes right now. I would be saying, I can't talk to you. I've got to go get my Nobel Prize <laughs> for peace, peace and harmony in the world. <laughs> right? I know. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Because <laughs> if you could put it in a pill, you know, um, 
did you know, I mean, there is there anything about those stories that you feel like, I mean, I guess you did just give an example about what, what the best practices might be, right? But I, I just wonder if you, the, it's the people that interest me. So look, at the common theme in all of these stories is that the person has to be able to say, I made a mistake. I was wrong. I did something that harmed someone I love, my client, my profession of law. I did something wrong. Medicine. I'm, I, I did, a, did a disastrous procedure in medicine. The, there are many reasons, both external and internal, that keep people from being able to say, I was wrong, I'm so sorry, and mean it, and get it. What does it take to make people more open-minded, willing to do that? If I knew what the common factor was, I do not. We do know one thing, in, in, certainly in, in businesses or in the law, is it's not going to be the people who made the mistake who are going to step up and make the corrections of that mistake. We've seen district attorney's offices all over the country. Is it the, is it the DAs who put innocent guys in prison for 37 years who are saying, gee, that was wrong, what can we do? No, it's what supervision committees higher than they looking into cases where there was proper uh, possible misconduct. So, uh, you know, we can't all in our families have an impartial review board. <laughs> You know, maybe that's what we need, though. Uh, but no, uh, we can't. We can only say, and um, Elliot has done a lot of had done a lot of good work on this himself. And it is that, at least on a personal level, when people learn that if they actually say, "I'm so sorry, I was wrong." that it's not, in fact, the end of the world. People want to hear this. People want to hear this from their employers. They want to hear it from their partners. They want to hear it from their doctors. They want someone to be responsible and say, I screwed up here. Now, what can I do to make amends for this? You know, And it, it's, it's ironic in a way because so hungry are we for people to admit it when they were wrong, that you'd think it would be easier for people to do, not harder. And yet, you know, that's, that's the power of our self-concept speaking. So I have a confession to make, which is that although I have used stamps.com since they became a sponsor, I have also gone to the post office. I did not use stamps.com to its fullest extent. I uh, guess what? I am now using stamps.com to its fullest extent. Who among us wants to maybe skip the line at the post office these days? Stamps.com brings you all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer, but in the safety of your own home. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in the mailbox. There's no human contact required, which of course is always appealing to people like me, but... 
especially appealing these days. And with stamps.com, you get great discounts too. Five cents off every first class stamp, up to 40% off USPS shipping rates. And now in addition to offering discounted US postal service rates, stamps.com also offers UPS services with discount rates up to 62%. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com and enter friends. So talking about what it takes or doesn't take um, gives me a few more theories. Um, One of them is that perhaps the most effective form of... um, conversion, you know, arguing, evangelism, however you want to put it, the most effective way to change someone's mind might be to minimize the idea that they're having to change their mind or change who they are at all. Like to make it acceptable, I guess it'd be minimizing the cognitive dissonance because like my friend Bob Inglis, who works on um, climate change and conservatives, trying to get conservatives involved in climate change, The thing that he always says is what I do is not convince them that Democrats are right, but rather that climate change is a conservative issue. Yes. You see, the point is not to make people feel they have to choose between supporting a policy and their hatred of Democrats. Um, Interestingly, I learned this from a lawyer once um, uh, on a, um, it was an ACLU case. He put it this way. If if evangelical Christians or other very devout Christians feel that they must choose between being a Christian and accepting evolution, if it's a forced choice, they're going to choose religion and decide that evolution is a you know an, uh, an atheist plot. But if the choice is made between Christians who are scientists and accept evolution the fundamental mechanisms in biology versus Christians who do not, then the issue of whether you're religious or not is off the table. Now I can, now I don't feel I have to choose, see? And so I agree um, with Inglis that that it is a matter of how these things are framed. Um, The ACLU case I was thinking of was uh, a a protest by a religious group against pre-football game prayer. And, um, you know, of course, many Christians were horrified. There's that atheist ACLU, you know, defending atheists, not wanting prayer before football. But the group that brought the complaint were Christians. They objected to the particular prayer, which didn't represent their views. Oh, okay, you mean it protects everybody's freedom of speech, does it? It's, It's just a different way of understanding the issues. And by the way, the other thing, too, is that when you argue with somebody who you feel has done something foolish um, or misguided, you don't make them explain why they were foolish and misguided. You say, look, you know, you're a generous, kind person who I understand, you know, wants to support your family now that you're in your late old age. And so that's why you spent thousands of dollars on this, you know, scheme to (laughs) whatever it might be. But you don't make them feel foolish and incompetent. You start with their motive, their motive for why they did what they did. 
to allow them to feel good about that. And I think we might be able to sort of draw to a close on a somewhat maybe upbeat note. Because we are talking about something to me that's upbeat, which is the capacity that we have to go against this incredibly powerful um, habit. So perhaps another way (laughs) that you can inspire people or nudge people or cultivate um, someone to see another point of view, to consider changing their minds, would be to to, uh, approach them as someone who is capable of changing his or her mind. Hey, want to write a book on this? <laughs> no, but you've absolutely got the point that you can be far more persuasive with kindness than not. Um, Eliot found a wonderful example of Benjamin Franklin. We hear often of vicious cycles, right? Vicious cycles, which we know how those guys work. But Ben Franklin talked about the virtuous cycle. When you do something nice for someone else, even an enemy, they now have some dissonance to reduce. You, an enemy, just did something nice for me. Maybe you aren't such an enemy. Okay? And in, in uh, Franklin's wonderful story about this, this former enemy indeed beca- became an ally. I think there's much to be learned from that because as soon as we get into an argument with an I'm right, you're wrong, I'm smart, you're stupid, forget it. You know. <laughs> Forget it. It will not go, and this will not turn out well. But you're right, too, that Elliot and I are, in fact, very optimistic about the human ability to think, reflect, and change. It's not easy, but it is an enterprise worth doing. Uh, Elliot talks about how uh, one of the reasons he became a social psychologist rather than a clinical psychologist is he said, clinical psychology is about repair. Social psychology is about change. I think that is, in fact, one of the lessons of our book that we try most to convey. Thank you so much. That was just so fascinating. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're just a terrific interviewer. Thanks a lot, everybody. And that was Carol Tavares, author of Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Thank you for joining us on this, the first episode of a brand new season. I'm very excited. I hope you're excited. And if you have any ideas about conversion stories you'd like to see covered or anything else having to do with the conversion experience, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We are at crooked underscore friends. Again, that's at crooked underscore friends. You know, I keep thinking about that pyramid, Carol was describing the pyramid of divergent choice. People make different choices at the top of that pyramid, and then they get further and further apart. It is difficult not to think of that pyramid in terms of our current unpleasantness, and it would be easy to get a little depressed by it. But Converts exist. We'll be talking about a lot of them. And their very existence should give us hope. Even if the choices that converts make put them at the moment further away from us, the very fact of these stories is hopeful, miraculous, even. 
inspiring. And I think we could all use some inspiration right about now. It is tempting uh, for me to go on a bit about the things that have happened since I was last speaking to you, dear listeners. All of the challenges and choices we're all in the middle of, but I'm going to resist because I think everything that I would say would lead up to the thing I've been telling you since the show started. My one biggest piece of advice, which is, of course, take care of each other, take care of yourselves. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil Smells like anything you think could happen Probably will Explore the new Glade Fresh Collection today.